0: up on Word Matters, your questions. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servin, Ammon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. This one's all about you, dear listener, or at least your questions, on each episode, we encourage listeners to email us at wordmatters at m-w.com with any language-related questions, complaints, or observations they want to share. We've received a wide array of such missives and thought we'd spend some time today addressing a few of them. M and Shea has our first question.
1: We're starting with a letter from James Collin, who is writing in about No problem. And he writes, I'm 50, and I seem to be right on the dividing line between older people who hate this reply to thank you and younger people who find it completely unexceptional and don't use your welcome. Why is your welcome falling out of favor, and why is no problem the most common replacement? One of the things that's interesting about this is that, you know, well, obviously language changes, and the things that we get upset about change, and the way that we respond to things change. And no problem is perhaps among the more common responses to thank you right now, but it's not the first or the only one. We do have evidence going back to the 18th century where people used to say don't mention it in response to thank you. In the 19th century, there's evidence, say, from Dickens and Great Expectations that people would say not at all, or we have people saying think nothing of it. And it's a recent development that people have started saying no problem. I think the issue that folks have with it is that it's seen as a kind of double negative and perhaps unfortunately familiar. But what I love about this is that we always find something to kind of kvetch about in terms of how we talk to each other. Some people like to complain about the other side of the equation, and people have been complaining about saying thanks rather than thank you. There's a great Rules of Etiquette and Home Culture book in 1893 that says when you receive attention or or a favor, acknowledge it by "I thank you" instead of "thanks." Thanks has become in a vulgarism
2: from the abuse of the word. Except it's in Shakespeare all all right. over the place. That's true,
1: yeah. thanks goes back to Shakespeare. That it,
0: doesn't mean it's not vulgarism. It
1: doesn't mean it's not an abuse of the word. So, but these figures of speech that we use, whether it's "I thank you," or "thank you," or "thanks," they change inevitably over the course of time. Right now, we are in the, the stage of human development that says, no problem.
0: No problem, I understand, to mean is it was no problem, right? right? It was no problem for me to do this thing for you that you are thanking me for. Right.
3: It seems to be about the transaction of thanking, right? It's about somebody is saying, I recognize that this was a burden for somebody to do, and then I went ahead and did it, and it was not a problem for me to do. And so I think maybe possibly the concern about something like no problem instead of you're welcome, it brings up the idea that it was a burden. It could have been a burden for somebody to do. And so instead of saying, when we say you're welcome, that's more of a, certainly a positive recognition of the transaction. I was glad to do this for you. No problem, success. It could have been a problem at some point. It was not.
1: I think these are all true, but for me, the real sticking point, the thing that sticks in the craw of those over 50 when someone says no problem is what it actually is translated as is, I refuse to abide by the meaningless linguistic strictures (laughs) that you were forced to learn as a child. I rebel against you and everything that you stand for, I cast you out and reject you utterly. That's the way it's broadly interpreted, I think.
2: It seems to me as a public radio listener that there would often be a kind of reporter speaking to a host And the host would say, thanks for your report. You know, thank you. And then the response at that moment would, for many, many years, was thank you. It was thank you and thank you. And then at some point, somebody complained and said, this doesn't make sense. And now I hear, you're welcome, quite a lot. And my favorite is David Folkenflick on NPR always says, you bet.
1: (laughs) So I say for kids out there who are listening, if you really want to rebel, what you should go back to is, I thank you, and Uh it is my pleasure.
3: But in other languages, we also sort of bring up this negative phrasing, like, isn't it "donada"? Isn't that what Right. We use in Spanish, yeah. which means it's nothing, or yeah.
2: In French, it's a little bit more elaborate, but it means the same. It, you know, is it "pas de quoi." Is that Il a pas de quoi"? Yeah. Pas de quoi. Exactly.
3: So it's not just an American cultural thing. Certainly, that we're reducing the sense of the effort that was required. It's international.
2: Maybe even more popular one in French is uh, "je vous en prie." which literally means I beg it of you. So that's neither negative. It's a a sort of hyper polite saying, I am so happy to help you that I ask to help you, basically. So they bring politesse up to the highest level with that one.
1: So if you really want to confuse people, just say, I beg it of you. There
2: we go. (laughs)
0: Neil Servan has our next listener question.
3: Listener Larry Weisberg writes about a word that we receive a lot of questions about at Merriam-Webster, and that is the word biweekly. He writes, how is anyone supposed to know which of the two meanings are the intended meaning? I mean, what's with that? It's a very good question. It sure is. And we'll say that it's not limited to biweekly. The problem is the same with bimonthly, and occasionally biannually, although that gets into other things we'll get into. But it's that sticky prefix bi that has two meanings, essentially. It can mean every two or it can mean twice a. So biweekly mm. ends up being interpreted as meaning twice a week or every two weeks.
0: I think the simple answer for Mr. Weisberg is nobody is supposed to know unless you have context. An English speaker who chooses to use the word biweekly really has to provide context that gives information about which meaning of biweekly is it every two weeks or twice a week. Otherwise, their listener or their reader is not supposed to know.
1: I think that this can be blamed on the American paycheck system. <laughs> the, that, that is really the only common event of something that historically has happened every two weeks. What else do we do every two weeks aside of get a paycheck?
3: Recycling. Really? I get my recycling picked up every two weeks. Uh,
1: not over where I am. We well, we have
3: town budgets. Maybe, yeah, you know.
1: but that's not a, a common use. I think the, the biweekly paycheck has become kind of ingrained yes. in our heads. So if we just changed everybody over to a weekly paycheck, this would be a non-issue.
3: Well, what are things that happen commonly? twice a week.
0: So there might be bi-weekly meetings. Right. Okay.
1: You have classes bi-weekly, I think. A lot yes. of kids okay. have classes every Tuesday and Thursday.
2: Or bi-weekly newsletter, for example. Then that could be confusing because does that mean every other week or twice? You would need more context, in other words.
3: So in the case of biannual, that word does have the same issue, mean occurring twice a year or occurring every two years. In that case, though, there is a second word, biennial. Oh, right. Which does mean almost strictly occurring every 2 years so you at least there have an alternative and then if you remember that then you can remember biannual as being twice a year more often than not i suppose it is clear which is meant and if not especially with biannual you still might want to provide that context absolutely right but
0: it is helpful that the language has developed these differentiating terms in this particular case and you know we recommend english please do it for biweekly but you know so far the language has not taken that recommendation.
2: Right. And it's evolved for one term, right, biannual, biennial. We actually figured out we need an easy way to tell one from the other, but we haven't quite figured that out for biweekly. But we're working on it. Who's in charge? <laughs> Who's in charge of this place? <laughs> I want to make a complaint.
0: You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. I'll be back after the break with another of your
2: questions. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
0: Word Matters is a production of Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.
2: I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the word of the day. A brief look at the definition and history of one word. Available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at NEPM.org.
3: I'm Neil Servan. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com.
0: Listener Linda Neatman, pardon me if I've mispronounced your name, Linda, Writes, do you all think that mashed potatoes will ever be acceptable along with mashed potatoes? Mm. This is what is happening with iced tea and Mm -hmm. iced coffee, which we talked about in an earlier episode. This is a process called elision, and elision just happens. These sounds fall out of words, and my sense is, yes, yes, someday, (laughs) someday.
3: It was interesting with iced tea, I think we talked about during that episode, that the T and T sort of encouraged maybe a, a people to interpret it with I-C-E at the beginning instead of not having the D. With mashed potato, you don't really have that happening. You have a consonant at the beginning of a potato, but you don't have, you notice a difference when you say mashed potato and mashed potato.
0: Yes, except when you're speaking quickly. So this would be more like what happened with iced cream, which did happen. We used to say, people used to say, iced cream. Right,
1: and usage guides are, at least among them, uh, Richard... Grant White, one of our foremost and most splenetic scolds <laughs> on the issue of language, back in 1881, had a furious chapter in his book about the fools. I don't know if he said fools, but he was very angry about the fact that people would say ice cream instead of iced cream. Also, water,
0: right? right. He didn't like iced. iced. Right, right. He wanted it, iced water. He was a
1: real crank, and nobody really seems to have paid that much attention to him, at least in this regard.
0: I feel like mashed potatoes, whatever you want to call that dish, is just such a wonderful food that I think if it gets a name that is somehow easier to say, I feel like that's just kind of in keeping with the pleasure that I derive from eating the food.
1: I think mashed potatoes is acceptable now. I'm going to go on
2: I can say that in the grocery store that I go to, there is an aisle that says "can." soup c a n space soup, so clearly wow. it had been canned soup Wait, uh, don't um, they
1: mean may soup?
2: <laughs> oh <laughs> but my point being that that's a similar movement, a similar reduction, a similar elision, canned soup sort of like you know old fashioned has essentially lost the e d okay. or boxed set. And both of those sort of phonetically box set. The terminal sound of an X is an S, and so there's this elision. That's true elision. We end up losing the syllable in the spelling, but actually in the phonetics it's not that different. Reading canned soup, it's pretty easy to understand what that is. I have to say, seeing it, that one kind of made me blink. My point being that that shows the level of acceptance of this kind of elision is maybe beyond what (laughs) what we had already thought, and mashed potatoes may already be here for some of us.
0: The fact is that elision happens. Next, it's Peter Sokolowski and another question from one of our listeners.
2: We got a note from Carol Chapman that says, I have one small suggestion maybe for a future podcast. I do not understand the different use of capital, that is capital with an O, versus capital, capital spelled with an A. Well, this is a pretty good example of what I call confusables in English, kind of like principle, principle is another one discrete and discrete, capital, capital. This particular one has a more clear answer than most, I have to say. A lot of these are simply spelling variants or doublets that have kind of entered the language at different times, but from the same source. In this case, that's sort of true if you squint, but the basic original meaning of capital with an A, that is to say C-A-P-I-T-A-L, the original meaning in English was the architectural one. We define it as the uppermost member of a column or pilaster, crowning the shaft and taking the weight of the entablature. So the uh, capitals that we think of as Ionic or Doric, for example, in classical architecture, that's where it started. And then it shifted to become, for example, the large letters that we know, the majuscule letters, as opposed to the minuscule letters. And then later, because the capital letters were more important, it became sort of this important thing or place, like the seat of government or the chief of influence. And so this word comes from the notion of the capital meaning the head of the column, the literal head, top of it, from capitalis, caput in Latin meaning head. And the capital with an O, interestingly enough, comes from a place. It's a place name in Rome that was called Capitolium, which was the temple of Jupiter at the Capitoline Hill. So it was, it was an actual geographic location. That's why we refer to the Capitol building with an O. And pretty much everything else, whether it's financial or in terms of leadership or in terms of architecture or, or alphabet, is spelled with an A. So the O is really just the building in which a state legislative body meets or, of course, the U.S. Capitol. So I don't know if that makes it very clear, but I thought it was interesting that we actually borrowed those two capitals from two different sources. Well, I think
0: it's interesting that the capital with an A has as its earliest meaning was architectural, but capital with an O is only about buildings. That's right.
3: I mean, if you think about which elements are confused, you know, capital letter, I think people, most people know which spelling is used there when you have a sense like the state capital, like Austin is the capital of Texas, then you're getting into difficulties because there is such a thing as a state capital building that you could also have that refers to government. It's the governmental senses, I think, that are most likely to be confused. I suppose if there is a way to sort them out, a mnemonic device to remember, which is for which mm. one I like to think of is that capital with the O is used for the building the, where the legislative body meets, and most of those buildings have domes.
2: Oh, right, exactly. Which are round. Yes. So if you think of that, the capital. round
3: letter is in capital for the dome and the, the domed building, and A is in for pretty much. Every other
2: use.
0: Every other use. That's right. The O is only for buildings.
2: Right. As Neil points out, the point of confusion is that, for example, the U.S. Capitol is in the Capitol, and those are two words that are spelled differently. But it also happens to be true that in at least the Anglo-Saxon tradition, the uh, seats of government are typically not in A-frame buildings. (laughs)
0: to all who have written to us. If you have a question or a comment, email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. Also, let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by John Vosey and Adam Maid. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.